Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, May 12th, 2016, the Mexican Students and CIA Torture Edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham. I am joined as usual by my co-hosts, Cristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello Cristal, how are Hel- you doing? I'm alright, thanks Adam, how are you? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not so bad. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day uh, here at Birmingham. It's, it's, it's exam season, um, so as everybody else is sweating in their uh, pressure cooker theatres, uh, we are here Sitting in a in rather breezy, air-conditioned, comfortable, comfortable room. And we are also joined in this palace of relaxation uh, by Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing okay. I was a bit disappointed not to be invited to the Queen's Garden Party, where I assume some fun things happen this week. But, you know, it's even better being here with you two than listening to people basically say really silly things about corruption in China. We say silly things about corruption in China. Yes, but we don't do it on a hot mic where it might be picked up by other governments. Yeah, our mics are a little too visible for any mistakes to take place in that department. Although if we've played our offcuts, who knows what reputational damage could be done. Uh, I, for one, would prefer to do a thousand podcasts than to attend a single one of the Queen's Garden Parties. Oh, uh, boo! He said that on record as well. Yeah, nothing brings out the Irish in me uh, more than suggestions that I want to get quality time with the monarchy. Anyway, it's been a good long time since we did a podcast. We were it supposed has. to be here last week uh, to record this very one, but uh, you two bailed a, a de- on me. Got, we, exactly, we, we left you hanging. We, we got did. a deluge yeah. of media attention uh, uh, as a result of Donald Trump and the apocalypse uh, becoming running mates uh, for the presidency of the United States. Scott and I had to do some talk. It's also been a good long time, or at least it feels like it, since we just did an honest-to-goodness meet-and-two-topics edition of the pod. Uh, But this week, listeners, we are back to basics. Uh, We're doing two separate topics uh, over the course of the minutes that we'll be with you. Our two stories from the world this week. First, the complicity of the Mexican state in the disappearance and presumed death of 43 students in 2014 is laid bare by an international panel, as are its attempts to cover up the crime. Just how rotten is North America's southernmost part? Second, a U.S. court agrees that a lawsuit against the CIA's Bush-era torture program on behalf of three of its victims can proceed. How far can this go? On Sunday, April 24th, an international panel of investigators sent to Mexico to look into events surrounding the September 2014 disappearance and presumed death of 43 students in the city of Iguala published its final report. Its contents were damning for the Mexican government, including suggestions that state forces were responsible for the students' deaths, had tortured people subsequently to facilitate a cover-up, and had obstructed and intimidated those carrying out the international investigation. The panel has ended its work now because its mandate has expired and the Mexican government has refused to contemplate extending it. The story here is a strange one, listeners, too complex to be fully retold here. But one core fact is that the missing students were attempting to travel to protests on hijacked buses when they were intercepted by police. After that, narratives diverge. The government's preferred version of events is that local forces, under the authority of the Iguala mayor, turned them over to a criminal gang who then killed them and burned the bodies. Subsequent events have drawn that version into question, however, with witnesses claiming the students were in fact taken away in police cars while military intelligence and federal police looked on. One student's body did turn up in Iguala, disfigured by brutal torture, but the authorities were signally reluctant to investigate. And experts working with the international panel have concluded that the government's suspects in the gang murder narrative were themselves tortured. All this has, if it needs saying, cast a shadow over the tenure of President Enrique Peña Nieto. Cristala, it seems like one of two things is true here. Uh, One could be that a local mayor and his police force turned over a bunch of student protesters to a gang to be brutally killed. Mm -hmm. The central government was then guilty of torture in its own investigation into that and needs to cover it up, which is bad. Or two, the federal government was actually involved in the deaths of these students at the outset, has then tortured a bunch of people into cooperating with a false narrative to cover that up, and has now successfully stonewalled an international inquiry. Those are both pretty terrible. Um, When did Mexico turn into Egypt? Uh, What's going on here? 
Mexico's had a long-standing problem with enforced disappearance um, and specifically related to criminal gangs around kind of drug crime. It's something, I guess, I mean, there are three things about this. And first, to pick up on your, your point about the, inv- the international investigation, the OAS group, who is really high profile, I mean, their reputation precedes them, threw their hands up in the air and said, we cannot get any more information, we are being stonewalled. I guess the broader context of this is is two things. One is that the disappearances really represent more than failures in criminal justice in, in Mexico because this happens so, so frequently. It also represents government corruption and massive distrust in, in law and order. Um, so there is tremendous, tremendous distrust between the public and the police, various levels of police services on this front, and people are being disappeared pretty regularly. And one kind of proof of this is that in the government's frantic effort to cover this up and get to the bottom, quote-unquote, as quickly as possible, in the digging for these 43 bodies, they uh, uncovered a series of mass burial sites of 140 other people who had been disappeared. By who were just unrelated to this yeah, event, they yeah, were they yeah. were other people yeah. who have presumably disappeared under other circumstances, not uh, as publicised until this point. Right, because it's so commonplace that that uh, and so kind of inherently accepted by the by the whole kind of machine that that this is a problem that 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 is faced systemically. Because um, that's the crazy part of it, right? That like the federal government, which is you know being criticised yeah. by this panel, like their their preferred narrative, the yeah. one that they actually want yeah. everyone to believe, still involves like an elected political official and the police force yeah. under his control yeah. enlisting the help of a gang yeah. to commit a mass murder. Yeah. That's the that's the best version of events that's, that the government wants people to believe. That's the thing that you read from the outside for the first time, and you go, "Wait, what?" Let me read that again because I'm not sure that I read it right. Because that seems pretty bad by most country standards in itself. So the idea that that's your preferred gambit for when yeah. something worse may be true yeah. is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, but I think the thing to highlight here is that generally there is such low levels of public trust in the, in the whole criminal prosecution system, in the police, in public officials, and especially in politicians in Mexico – and in a context of rising levels of homicide, right, and in some cases quietly rising and in some cases really severely rising. And um, the IC- ICG, the um, International Crisis Group, put out their, their project director for Central America, wrote kind of a little op-ed the other day on this, saying exactly that, that, there's, that there are more and more homicides, that it's an intrinsic problem with the justice system, in Mexico. So that's one thing, but the the thing about political corruption kind of leads me on to the next broader point, which is that what we saw over the course of this story is what Ginger Thompson from the New York Times said is the problem of self-image, right? So politicians have been redirected redirecting the public not internationally and domestically towards this whole Trump stuff and building the wall and we need to nationally kind of uh, put on a good face and a shared kind of front to focus on racism against Mexico. And they're doing this as a kind of sleight of hand and a refusal to address the real issues that are, that are, that are happening in Mexico around these kind of disappearances. Right. Let's not talk about the hundreds of our own disappeared citizens yep. when we need to pay closer attention to a foreign country's exactly. election and how rude they may or may not be being about us. Yeah, and Donald Trump and all of his racist craziness. So, and, and what it underlines is just this total fatigue that pe- I think people feel and this cynicism that nothing is going to change in the country. Hmm. Because it seems like, I mean, part of it is, you know, Mexico has never really been uh, a country you'd put on a poster on the wall for the quality of its democracy or justice. You know, it was a, basically a one-party state for quite a long time mm-hmm. with, with all various problems of clientelism and corruption that come with that. But it seems like things took a real turn for the worse in the last decade uh, when Calderon was elected, yeah. um, decided to militarize the drugs war yeah. um, because the perception at that point was that the the drug gangs were extremely powerful yeah. extremely well resourced they had all of the local yeah. authorities in yeah. their pocket and that you know this 
was a bad thing, so something needed to be done about yeah. it. Uh, Calderon's, uh, this is the president of Mexico at the time, policy was to use federal authorities, the armed forces and yeah. maybe national units of the police who were less corrupt to resolve this issue by sending them in to crack skulls effectively try and disrupt dismantle uh, and whatever other words counter-terrorism uses to to to, cult, to characterize things like this the the operations of these drugs gangs and it seems like that's followed a pretty familiar arc which yep. is that they turn up as the new force relatively uncorrupt and relatively effective in yeah. a limited sense but once they're there for any length of time you know their initial popular welcome because of their cleanliness and effectiveness, quickly dissipates yeah. as, first of all, the counterproductive quality of um, a militarized attack on such a well-rooted phenomenon becomes apparent. You know, the, the lack of civil liberties, the violence, uh, the, uh, the general disorder that comes from decapitating drug gangs and yeah. effectively producing semi-anarchic gang violence. Yeah. Uh, but also the... Uh, the inevitable corruption of those institutions yep. because the reason the local forces were corrupt wasn't because the local people were bad people. It's yep. because they had a primary responsibility for dealing with these well-resourced right. criminals. They had proximity to them and therefore they were the mechanism through which you would seek to corrupt the state. And it seems like uh, the organs of the state, that some of them have become criminal themselves uh, in important ways and those who have not become criminal, many of them have become extremely ruthless and violent in how they practice their um, their security strategy uh, in a way that's effectively paramilitary um, and therefore it seems like some some from from my perspective it looks like some strategic decisions about the militarization of the war on drugs that were taken about a decade ago uh, seem to have made a not good situation very considerably worse does that seem like a reasonable analysis to you? Scott, what do you think? I, I think it's part of it. Um, I mean, let me say something initially, which is strikes me about the case. This isn't, you know, if it was a case, it was just simply drug gangs bumping each other off. You know, bad guys against bad guys, I think it would be one thing. But not only in this case, these were students from a teacher's training college. But in a series of other cases, Cristallo referred to the discovery of bodies. These were like, quote, ordinary citizens. There was one case, actually a case a few years ago, basically of disappearances of women yeah. in Mexico. And so it's like, it's the idea anybody is vulnerable here. Mm. Now that's the first thing that strikes you. The second thing, though, which is to put in the context of systems, if it was in a place like Africa, if it was in a place like the Middle East, we'd probably be starting to yell fa failed state, right, or mm. failing state. And this would be over the process, as you've noted, over many decades. Mm. Um, it's the combination of what has been a one-party system with an entrenched system of patronage, a somewhat dysfunctional economy, uh, in some cases with drug money being a significant part of local economies. It is part of a judicial system which at best is ineffective, which at worst is part of the problem because it's been corrupted. Mm. And it's part of the problem of that there is no effective law enforcement system that's been developed. It's been sort of like this ad hoc reaction that you talked about and then it becomes the next person who winds up basically being paid off. I guess all that has to be said, which is it's, it's always nice in podcasts. You're like, okay, here's the solution. Here's the quick thing that we're going to say, or at least here's the path to recovery. There really isn't an obvious one at this point. I think the only thing that I think may be distinctive about this case as opposed to the others is, is whether because you have actually for the first time had the international inquiry, or to be specific, regional states, because it's the Organization of, of American States, the OAS, that's been brought in, whether there'll be a sense of pressure upon the Mexican government and the system, which is, look, it's really time you get your act in order, because this is in a wider context in Latin America. Ironically, some of the people from these states that came in and investigated were from countries which a generation ago were going yeah, through absolutely. their own problems of military yeah. dictatorships of random law enforcement, or actually not random law enforcement, systematic law enforcement disappearing people, killing people. Mm. And the idea has been that within Argentina, with Chile, even Brazil, despite its recent political issues, these countries have made progress. Now, these, uh, this region has been, has been a global leader in combating enforced disappearance. Okay. I mean, there is no question about that. And so the group that you talk about is, is, is I agree with you absolutely, it's, it's 
so well renowned in part because it has these decades of experience in combating the very systemic problems, the hard problems that you talk about, Scott. Mm. But I think there's one problem here. Let me put this back to Cristalic and to you, Adam, and that is, in a way, those cases we just talked about, which is Chile, Argentina, Peru, uh, Paraguay, Bolivia, all of it was because they had been under authoritarian governments Mm. that had this black mark of being military juntas, right? All right, fine. Something needs to be done. Mexico's gotten away, I think, in part because it's always been nominally a civilian government, even in a one-party government it was like nominally one that was elected time and time again Mm -hmm. so they never came up as a target for basically international denigration will it happen this time that actually pressure will be put upon them which says you don't simply have to be part of an axis of evil or a failed authoritarian state to be held to be uh, accountable it looks like it's going that way and in addition i think that I'd, i'd touch on a really good point that you made which is that this is this is also a political protest. So these the the student hijackings of the buses, if you read you know five minutes into this topic, you understand is that it's a ritual that happens, and there's kind of a tacit acceptance around it. So they hijack these buses. Um, the 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 people who drive the buses are told a certain protocol to to respect, and what they're doing is they're going to commemorate a student massacre that happened in '68 in Mexico City. There is a political undertone into this and that's important to remember what happened afterwards was that the protests so people were disappeared both from the buses but also from the subsequent very quickly galvanized protests that happened uh that same night Mm. so the people that went to protest put to protest were also disappeared so there is both the random element that you're talking about structural problems but also there is which is deceptive there is a political element under there's a, there's a, there's an attacking political opposition that's mm. that's inside all of this and i guess i mean maybe to put a slightly more refined point on on what i was saying earlier when i was drawing the drugs war into this i would want to make it clear that i'm not suggesting that the police thought that they were dealing with drug crime yeah. in the in carrying out these actions the people who were killed were entirely unrelated to that uh, they were students they were they were protesting etc i think what i what i would argue is that it is it is the imperative handed to federal institutions, uh, police and military and intelligence, to deal with the drugs war by any means necessary yeah. that's created a culture of autonomy and impunity within those organizations. It's also in its uh, corrupted and maladapted form uh, the relationships between those agencies and criminal gangs. Yeah. The uh, you know the very fact that it's considered a plausible narrative to create yeah. that uh, drugs gangs acting on behalf of local authorities were murdering and disposing of people suggests that it's a commonplace that there are all sorts of dark entanglements taking place between organised crime and uh, and the state at various levels. So it's a combination of those links and the uh, the autonomy and impunity of these organisations which is which is worrying and you know. At this point, it is very clear that all the way up to the top of the federal government, there must be some kind of incentive to try and shut down uh, a complete sunlight-based analysis of exactly what, what has gone on here. Otherwise, with the pressure that's been applied, with the manifest embarrassment that's produced, if, even if that's all one cared about by this case, uh, the president and, and those around him would have appear, it would appear every incentive to try and, you know, reopen this investigation and get to the bottom of it. There's obviously something going on institutionally uh, that makes the state apparatus all the way up to that level too complicit for, for that to be possible. And my, like my, I am not about to sympathize with anyone I- involved in it, but what I would say is I think the original sin that lies in many of the problems that they are dealing with is the pressure to deal with the issue of the international movement of drugs um, in an uncompromising criminal justice-based way, uh, which comes from uh, you know international factors from the United States, yeah. not least, which when applied to, the, to Mexico produced a decision to militarize that, which in turn filters down through those, those mechanisms that are very counterproductive that I talked about. And therefore you end up with people who have nothing to do with the war on drugs, who are mm-hmm. essentially domestic political dissidents of a mild kind, but because they exist in a context of reactionary impunity on the part of law, law enforcement, this kind of thing can go down and people can think they they need to cover it up and can cover it up i think that's right but just to bring that point back together with cristal there's a linkage here at least 
what I'm saying is, is that you can't just simply, I think, put it all on the question of this ill-advised reaction to drugs because we're talking about when you decades going back to, say, 1968, when you had law enforcement just cutting people down because they dared to take to the streets and protest, there is still this suspicion, and of course it's not unique to Mexico, that can spill over into violence of any, quote, protest, any type of activity seen as challenging the legitimacy of the government, of law enforcement. What actually happened on the night of Iguala, whether it was political motives, whether it just simply was a law enforcement group that just simply got scared they'd be found out after the first person died, we, we don't know. And I think at least that's where I put my hands up and say until we do know more, all of these issues are in the mix. But again, I think the important thing is not to let this disappear. Just to put up a parallel, and I don't... 20 years ago, we might have been talking about Colombia. Mm. 10 years ago, even talking about Colombia with Project Colombia. Again, the U.S. putting money in mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. militarize the drug war, mm-hmm. the fight against FARC, uh, the left wing insurgency. Whether it's a case that Colombia has gotten better or we just simply have turned our eyes away, we don't talk about it in the same way we talk about Mexico now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at some point... Drugs, recognizing that the pernicious way that drugs are approached is part of the issue. But I think there does have to be basically this question of responsibility and accountability that once and for all is addressed in Mexico. Well, I told you we were back to the original format, listeners, which means you will be excited to learn that we're going to return to our, uh, our familiar break up the two items moment, which is number of the week, where we make a thinly veiled attempt to talk about something we're interested in uh, through the excuse of a number that can be connected to the story. Uh, who's going to go first? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Scott, give us, <laughs> oh, give, give us a number <laughs> and tell us something interesting about uh, it. I'm going to go with... My number of the week is 136. 136 is the number in the 2015 Transparency Index on Corruption given to Nigeria out of 168 countries. I do not say this to praise Nigeria for being 136, but just noting that there are 32 countries which are below it. Mm. Why do I do that? Because... At the Queen's Garden Party. Which I wasn't invited to. (laughs) Gutted. Prime Minister David Cameron, on a hot mic, said that Nigeria, as well as Afghanistan, were the two most fantastically corrupt countries in the world. Mm. To which the Queen nodded sagely, because she's very sage. And to (laughs) which the leader, or Speaker of the House of Commons said... Well, about the leaders coming to the anti-corruption conference from Nigeria and Afghanistan. But they did pay their own way, didn't they? Oh, he's a wag. He's a uh, har, har, har. that speaker. Um, now, I mentioned this number of the week not to say that I think that Nigeria has been unfairly treated because it is spectacularly, spectacularly doing well in fighting corruption. Nor do I definitely think that of Afghanistan, which, by the way, ranks 166 out of 168 for the benefit of our listeners. Well, congratulations, Dave, Afghanistan. Let's just getting say closer. congratulations, Dave, for getting Dave, Dave, for getting one out of two of those, yeah, correct. Exactly. Hmm. Now, why he didn't happen to mention 167 and 168, which are North Korea <laughs> and Somalia, we'll leave that for the moment. I think the reason why I want to point it out is that... Um, we can talk about the fact that there's a debate over whether the new president of Nigeria, President Buhari, is actually serious about tackling corruption and fighting it. What I'm actually more interested in is how stupid must you be in a 21st century world where we are surrounded by technology and knowing that that technology was there at the Queen's Garden Party to be a head of government, Mr. Cameron, and a head of state, the Queen, and basically trash other heads of government who are about to come to London at a conference that you're hosting. Are you going to go, go conspiracy theory on us here, Scott? No, I'm just going, sometimes stupidity doesn't need conspiracy theory. It's people basically bigging it up at a performance, and this is what comes through to show 
how the British, of course, are such paragons mm -hmm. of leading the fight against corruption that But we can look at the others. That's the thing, right? That's the thing. It's in the context of this of this conference that he is supposed to be leading to tackle a topic that is nationally important to him and to his party at this time mm. in the context of what happened with Panama Papers. Ding! The two words that you should not be mentioning. <laughs> that Remember that Dave was exposed because he has a family trust linked to one of the offshore accounts, which is in the Panama Papers. But we don't... Not that there's anything wrong with that legally, Louise. No. <laughs> just, just to be clear, to remind us all of our Adam's parameters. Adam's keeping us on track. It's tax avoidance, yeah, spectacularly legal. tax evasion. Right? Fantastically, Fantastically legal. Fantastically legal, that's it. And just because, although entirely legally, he didn't come clean about this in terms of weeks still speaks, I guess, for his transparency and openness oh. as opposed to the fantastically corrupt leaders who were coming to see him. I just, maybe it's because I'm speaking as a colonial myself that this smacks just a little bit of imperial double standards, yeah. which doesn't really get us any farther in dealing with corruption because here's the other thing out of that conversation to wrap it up. Dave then says, but it's wonderful that we're all going to be out in the open Talking about corruption, how many meaningful achievements do you think were held at a conference in the open about anti-corruption where the first thing the leader of Nigeria said is, would you now return all the money that has been corruptly taken from my country and put into your British banks? Thank you and good afternoon. Hmm. David Cameron being left out in the open. That's the image that's going to stay with me from that, uh, from that conversation. Cristala, throw a number our way. Really. My number of the week is zero. I'm taking liberties with my number of the week. It is a number. Uh, thousands of years of uh, Arabic civilization Absolutely. brought it to us and changed the course of history. For which we are grateful, uh, though people on planes, American people on planes, white American people on planes may not be. Um, so, my number of the week is Listeners zero. Listeners can track down what that's <laughs> reference to in their own time. Not, yes. You just not, Google plain math. Zero is the level of moral responsibility that the Australian um, immigration minister has. And while I'm allocating that number of moral responsibility, I will allocate it to both um, major parties, the Labour and your favourite term, Liberal Party in Australia. Right, the, uh, the, the, the illiberal Liberal yes, Party. Yes, the absolutely illiberal Liberal Party, who incidentally will go to an election in two months' time. Mm -hmm. But that is not the point of this uh, number of the week. The point of my um, of my horror is that last week two people uh, who had been granted refugee status in Australia set themselves on fire, one of whom died. Uh, They'd been granted refugee status. They had been. They were recognised to be genuine asylum, uh, genuine refugees granted asylum and then told that they may continue to spend an indeterminable amount of time in detention in, in Nauru, um, in Papua New Guinea. This is not uncommon in, in the Australian detention uh, parallel universe. Um, so what happened... In, it, what, um, and let's go back to the general climate. The general climate is that asylum seekers in Australia are being, deter in, being detained kind of for an infinite amount of time. People who are found to have genuine refugee status are being detained for decades. Decades. Um, there are murders of asylum seekers by guards at the, at the detention centres. There has been a death due to a treatable infection uh, recently. There have been multiple reports of rape and torture and sexual abuse against children in these, in these detention centres, in these prisons, open-air prisons. The UNHCR has, has called the detention centres inhumane and illegal, and the Supreme Court of Papua New Guinea declared that recently that Nauru is unlawful and will be closed down. So in the context of all of this, two people decided that setting themselves on fire and dying that way was a better way than continuing in these detention centres. And the response of Australia's Immigration Minister, Peter Dutton, was to say that refugee advocates were encouraging asylum seekers to self-harm 
in order to raise their profile. So this is the context that we, that we have in the parallel universe of, of morality in Australia, which is leading the way to enable other countries to treat immigration so harshly and asylum seeking so harshly. And so what I want to bring to the table is the upcoming federal election on the 2nd of July, which incidentally is an excellent day because it's my birthday. Um, I, but hope you, I hope you get the present you're looking for. <laughs> well, Stella. I don't know that I will because both parties are just so terrible on this policy. It's, mm. It was absolutely unbelievable to me that two people set themselves on fire and the general response. There was a huge backlash, but also the general political response as well. They did it to themselves, which, yes, literally they did by setting themselves on fire, mm. but they deserved it. Amazing. Yeah, grim stuff. Get your act together, Australia. My, uh, my number of the week uh, is 5,000. Uh, that is the number of dollars that is being, uh, well, that has arrived as the starting bid on the gun of one George Zimmerman. Anybody remember George Zimmerman? George Zimmerman is the uh, resident of Florida uh, who basically kicked off pretty much our modern era of backlash and protest against violence and the lack of punishment for violence against black Americans. Uh, he's basically a self-appointed neighborhood watch type who shot an unarmed black man, uh, Trayvon Martin, in 2012 because he was looking suspicious while walking back from a shop with a bag of Skittles in a, in a neighborhood where he would seem regarded the sight of a black man walking as intrinsically suspicious and then decided as a private citizen he was going to freelance from there and it ended up with, a, with, with Trayvon Martin dead. He, uh, it, it was initially a scandal because the police uh, apparently uh, dealt very cursorily with the incident and weren't going to bring it into the criminal justice system. It then did become uh, a matter for the criminal justice system, but he, there, was, uh, there was no conviction. He, he was acquitted, and it became a kind of cause celebre. Uh, because, it, because it became a focus for so many African Americans and liberals to highlight the injustices of racial inequality and police treatment of African Americans and, uh, and all of that, it also became a magnet for all of those dark and terrible forces on the other side of the spectrum that basically are anywhere ranging from literal and overt racists who just think shooting black people should be uh, tolerable as a recreational activity over to people closer to the center of the spectrum who just regard uh, uh, current African-American complaints against uh, the police and criminal justice as an unacceptable effort to undermine the institutions of society and... Uh, uh, a tacit endorsement of uh, thuggish and illegal and uh, uh, antisocial behavior. So he has become a kind of hero, maybe a strong word, but probably not too far off, a figure of that kind amongst the dark and racist tendency on the American right. That means that uh, despite the fact that uh, this is what most normal human beings would regard as the worst day of their life and a terrible embarrassment that they could have done it, uh, a day that he clearly thinks positively enough about in his own past that he now wants to sell the gun that he used to kill Trayvon Martin online, uh, starting at $5,000. I personally would not be surprised if he got more money than that uh, in the end from, uh, from some force. And because he's never been convicted of any offense, there is no, no basis on which this can be prevented. His, his quote um, is that, I am a free American and I can do what I want with my possessions. Indeed, you can, uh, George Zimmerman, but you nevertheless should be ashamed of yourself as equally should anyone who is bidding any money for this gun. Uh, an ugly postscript to an ugly story. On April 22nd, a federal judge in the United States ruled in the Eastern District of Washington that the case of three men subjected to torture by the CIA during the Bush administration could proceed. The case, brought by the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, on behalf of Suleiman Abdullah Salim, Mohammed Ahmed Ben Soud, and the family of Gul Rahman, is based on the fact that the three were subjected to waterboarding, beaten, hung from metal rods, held in coven-sized boxes, and deprived of light, food, and sleep. Uh, 
Rahman died in U.S. custody in 2002. The suit in this case is specifically against James Elmer Mitchell and John Bruce Jessen, two psychologists contracted by the CIA to design and implement their torture program and whose company was paid $81 million. I'm going to say that number again, listeners. $81 million for their trouble. Wonder what their overheads were. The government has successfully blocked previous cases of this type by crying national security, but this time the litigants were aided by the declassification of the U.S. Senate's report on torture, which means they can make the case regarding their treatment based on documents that are already public. Mitchell and Jessen, meanwhile, will seek to defend themselves on the basis that the program operated only at the CIA's instruction, and it would be unjust to try them while both the CIA and the administration that authorized its actions go unpunished. So, Scott, um, this has been, as I said, bubbling under for a, for a while. This is their first breakthrough, seemingly, in, in the courts. How far do you think this is going to get? And uh, perhaps more to the point, how far do you think it should get? <laughs> you know what I'm going to answer to both of those. How far it should go should be all the way to the top of those who were complicit in ordering and carrying out torture, which means it should go all the way up to George W. Bush. How far it will go is probably not very far, and I think almost definitely not beyond these two men. I mean, let's, let's first of all be very clear that this is in no way to do, actually adopt their pretext, which is, look, welcome, Nuremberg Redux. We were just carrying out orders, boys and girls, it's not us. Uh, these were brutal experiments. They were doing it to make money as well as part of their own perverse sense of basically scientific experiments to see how far you could go to break body, mind, and will. Um, they, however, are only in the dock, first of all, because of what you explained, which is because the Senate uh, report on torture revealed too much <laughs> in some ways, which left them vulnerable, and they're in the dock because they're not government employees, they're contractors. And contractors are, in a sense, at just a little bit of level of exposure. Think a little bit about, in a parallel case, albeit one which really didn't go through the courts, but went through public opinion, which is Blackwater. Mm. The boys who went around and shot up Iraq and abused citizens there. But who, by the way, continue to operate under another name. Uh, Whether or not these two even get to a phase, which is a hearing about whether they're culpable, is debatable, because we now go to a process of discovery where there's going to be a huge debate about what evidence can be admitted into court because anything beyond that Senate report expect not only their lawyers but probably government lawyers to talk about classification of information. Um, it'll be a long time before we find the outcome of this. Just to give you one parallel, just to say that, you know, in the 1950s, there were a set of doctors and psychiatrists who did the same thing in terms of working with the CIA and the U.S. government in terms of programs for torture, programs for, quote, mind control, uh, even programs for assassination. Uh, No one was held accountable through a court of law. It really only was because of the Church Committee in the 1970s, which revealed some of the CIA's workings, that those names came out. Uh, History does tend to repeat itself, contrary to what we're told should be the case. So, uh, no, I just to tie this to an earlier conversation, it's never that one system is accountable and that another is not. It's that some systems just have levels of accountability. This might be a little bit above the level of Mexico in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of getting some accountability, but it's not going to be a full reckoning. There are two things that are interesting about this, though, and one is the symbolic aspect of it, right, the, the symbolic importance of, of the possibility the possibility of this case. And I totally agree with you, Scott, that there's going to be a very long-term process and probably a limited outcome, limited to these two guys. But in a context where we have had global complicity for torture for the last, how long has it been? 15 years. Um, To the extent where in the basement of the Chicago Police Department there has been torture and disappearance of U.S. citizens. Oh, they had more than a basement. They had a whole building. Yeah, that's right. The basement of that building. They took out premises uh, for a black site uh, in international security parlance in their own city. So, so, So my question is, does this 
kind of shine a light on that entire system? And is it is it indicative of a possible, possible, please God, let your answer be yes, shift in this culture of of um, of uh, acceptability of this? No. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really sorry about this, but remember, you know, we were supposed to have gone through all of this in the 70s in a U.S. context, right? We had, uh, you know, the whistleblowers that came out that revealed this scale of corruption, the scale of abuse that had taken place in that earlier generation in the Cold War. And all it really took were like the shocks to pull it back. Reagan by the 1980s basically sanctioning assassination and creating Iran-Contra. Well, Iran-Contra got exposed. Okay, then we'll clean it up. But when 9-11 occurs, then you just yell national security again and you institute this. Now, to the extent that we don't have, quote, another shock to the system, mm. maybe we get a little bit of a gradual openness. Maybe we get a little bit of fulfillment of, remember that Obama statement, we must never again let our ideas deviate from security. But I don't. I mean, remember, we've got, and heaven help me, I was going to try to keep him out of the conversation this time. You know, when you've got the Republican nominee for president who draws applause lines for at least a significant minority of people by saying we should go back to that system of torture, even if former officials who were, who were involved in the Bush administration, even if they condemned that statement, right? Mm-hmm. The fact is he continues to utter it. Um, we keep fighting the fight. It's and to that, extent, to that extent, I agree with you. And it's in a climate where, you know, what was his name? Eric, what's his name? Uh, Eric Fair, who wrote the recent memoir about he was a, he was a private contractor who um, used the enhanced interrogation mm-hmm. methods and, and wrote this kind of confessional about how bad it is. And, and it's an interesting read, actually. And also, I mean, what, I, I, get, I get your point, but I do think that there is a kind of growing national discussion about this, mm-hmm. a global discussion, actually, about this. I think to the extent that the global discussion continues to basically say there's no one standard for a U.S. and one standard for the rest of us. I agree with mm. you. And to the extent that we learn more about this case, absolutely. Mm. I'm all in favor of openness. I'm just very, very wary. Because, you will be honest with you, America has been psychologically screwed up by 9-11. Mm. And I'll just, not exactly academic language or podcasting, but just speaking personally, it was screwed up by 9-11. And that type of trauma, which in a sense allowed the torture to come through, allow the rationalization that anything was okay. We may have rode back on it a little bit, but to my extent, I think American political culture, not all Americans, but a little American political culture is still damaged by that and therefore mm. still vulnerable to this occurring again. I mean, I, I, I would say uh, a couple of things about this. I mean, I guess as a precursor to the first point, just to restate something that you said there, Scott, we're talking... Uh, I can only feel so bad for these two guys, right? Like, 81 they, right, million right. dollars. These two guys got paid $81 million and they tortured people in exchange for it, right? So the smallest violin in the world is playing <laughs> for these two guys when they say it's so unfair uh, that, that I should be held accountable. But, for, you know, for, these for, are for the this. guys, I think, that developed the, um, the military resistance to interrogation program in mm-hmm. the first place, right? Which was then reversed yeah. for the purposes yeah. for the purpose of this, based on but it was that sort of perverse thing where they were basically simulating torture to train people in how to deal with and resist it, and then they flipped the script to say, well, if we're doing this to our own troops, then it can't be illegal, so we therefore ought to be able to to, to perform it. Um, so, but a prelude would be to say that that that, like I said, smallest violin in the world for them. I'm not about to sympathise with them, but. Setting aside whether or not I feel sympathetic for them personally, I do think it would be weird if if it was possible to go through the courts to get restitution from these individuals at the same time as the institutions and individuals who made the political decision to create a whole apparatus that would act in this way and therefore were ultimately responsible for this... um, 
won't be won't be answerable for it. I mean, the Nuremberg analogy is apt in the sense that their argument is they were just following orders. But in Nuremberg, those who had made the decisions up to the top, to the extent that they were still around, were also being held accountable. Whereas in this case, we would have the odd spectacle of the fact that because they happen to have a different uh, uh, pay stub, uh, these guys can get hit, whereas you know we can litigate and argue about whether or not Obama had made the right or the wrong decision to effectively immunize the CIA and its employees from retribution for these things. But I think it's very hard to have that decision exist in parallel to um, a successful following through of, of, of mechanisms of punishment against against these contractors. But the other thing that that, that I wanted to say was that. Certainly because of the fact that there has never been a full reckoning legally uh, for the torture that was carried out, despite the vocal rhetorical condemnation of it by the Obama administration and the disavowing of it, it is the case that um, you know, there are laws uh, uh, that now prohibit starting up some of those activities again because they were passed uh, in the latter years of the of the Bush administration but still it would be in theory perfectly possible for a new president and a congress that was disposed to cooperate to reverse uh, to reverse uh, the current dispensation and bring back some of these things like uh, uh, Ted Cruz was talking about bringing back waterboarding and then Donald Trump in his uh, you know whatever terrible is I'll plus one it uh, saying well waterboarding's too good we could do I'll do worse than waterboarding I'll do waterboarding and more. But one of the things that is interesting is, aside from just saying that it's not a good idea, um, I think many of those who are by no means liberal lefties, etc., those who work within the intelligence services or have worked in the intelligence services, have basically said that if a new president comes to power and issues instructions to the effect that this kind of stuff should be done. Given what's happened in the years since, with the new administration coming in, the banning of it, the investigations, the years of legal jeopardy for everyone associated with the programs, who still today are only legally safe thanks to the beneficence of the current, the current administration, that if he issued those orders to the CIA, he would have a crisis, he would have whatever the, the equivalent of a crisis in civil military relations is with, with that organization that basically no one in their right mind who wants to be either personally safe from the prospect of jail or has any sense of institutional responsibility for the viability of the CIA as a continuous functional part of the American American government is going to obey those orders. He will have to have, uh, you know, the Knight of the Long Knives plus 10 to get down to the person in the apparatus who will receive and accept the, uh, the order to do it because people who went along with this stuff first time round, now see where it goes when the political wind turns. And I think it would be um, it would be interesting to see just how many national security hawks who nonetheless have a professional bureaucratic responsibility to the CIA as an institution would uh, just straight up refuse to cooperate with a political leadership that thought they could reprise all this stuff um, uh, simply because they won an election. Yeah, but Adam, that's not the way it happens. I mean, I agree with you in absolutely the way that you spelled it out, but that's not the way that it works, that a president comes in and says, okay, go off and torture them. So remember, after 9-11, remember that they were actually carrying out, quote, enhanced interrogation mm. for several months as part of, quote, institutional practice. And then they wrote the uh, the covering memo in August 2002, one of, by the way, one of the people who wrote that memo is, was punished by getting a very well-paying job at California Law School. This would be John Yu. This would be John Yu, right. And, and so what I suspect you have happen is, is that there's some type of cause that's there, which is we've got to get the Islamic State or we've got to get this group that's out there that's linked to al-Qaeda. Well, you know, how are we going to do it? And you start to create the institutional developments, and then somebody says, well, we need something to cover our backs on this, and then another memo possibly gets written. Now, has the barrier been elevated against that process again because of what happened? Yeah, I think it's going to take more than another uh, than another couple of memos out of the Office of Legal Counsel before, yeah, before CIA responsibilities are going to go along. I think this. I probably agree with that, but I just think that the thing is, is that we don't know which way the international situation will go. We don't know where it'll turn. I mean, mm. in part, what has, quote, saved us is that the Obama administration has not put boots on the ground to the mm. same extent that the Bush administration did. Therefore, you don't need this type of cover. But remember that to give a parallel where there is an awful lot to be debated about in terms of a different type of killing and abuse, the question of targeted killing from the air, mm. right? where we're on new ground, where there isn't established law, 
Yeah. You know, where do we actually I, I consider guess, that argument? I guess the one thing that I would say about that is that uh, the legitimacy of drone strikes appears to be relatively bipartisan. Both parties seem to be okay with it. And there isn't really a torrent of, uh, of public outrage about it, um, whereas terror, uh, uh, torture, I should say, uh, has pretty much become something that only the Republican Party is prepared to defend and where a significant part of the public reacted with, with horror when this report came out. I just think if you were uh, uh, a senior CIA official and even if you thought that what had been done before was perfectly legal or even to some extent effective, you would still be crazy uh, to get a phone call from President Cruz or President Trump saying, you know, please, uh, please recommence the waterboarding program and go ahead with it. Because flash forward four years or 10 years, you're going to have your whole life dominated by inquiries, reports calling you a torturer, threat of legal jeopardy hanging over you. I think for purely pragmatic reasons, you'd be insane to cooperate. It's easy, it's easy to say when you're a politician, on, you know, ex-presidents know they're not going to jail. Um, if Nixon didn't, no one will. Uh, whereas if you're, a, if you're some middle-ranking institutional flunky, you don't have that luxury. And I, would, I, I think it would be very hard to make it happen. I'll take that qualified note of optimism. While noting, however, back to your original question, who else gets basically pays the piper for what happened in terms yeah. of torture? After 2001, there'll be no one who served in an official position in the administration that will ever have to be called to account for it. But you've got to admire the tenacity of the lawyers who are taking these cases on because I think it's a tactical, it's a tactical stroke of brilliance, I think, what they did. This is the ACLU. Yeah. And, yeah, and I agree with that. And for all my pessimism about where this might go, or let's say now qualified optimism, conceding Adam's point, yeah, absolutely right. Those people who continue to fight the fight against long odds Mm. should absolutely be admired rather than denigrated, which has happened with them in other cases yeah. for what they're doing. And to get this kind of stuff on the record as well, like just the fact that someone can make £81 million pounds for Hello. running a torture yeah. program, I, I'd, I'm glad that's on the public record at least. Okay, I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview. Please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud. Um, and you can get updates on our, our new editions and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. And please come like our show book, uh, our show book, our show page on Facebook, uh, our, show, our show book on face page, uh, www.facebook.com slash pollworldview, where you can see article links, uh, uh, updates about other things that we're doing, and, of course, uh, links to the, the pod itself. Our participants today have been the awesome usual team. It's good to have you both uh, back around the table on two topics around. Lovely to be back. Uh, uh, Scott, where can people find you on social media? I'm at the News and Analysis website, EA Worldview, eaworldview.com, or on Twitter at scottlucas underscore EA. And Cristala, where can fans and or bounty hunters uh, find you online? They can find me at Twitter at at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. I look forward to the bounty hunters. That'll be fun. You never, you never know. They're very high tech these days. <laughs> Cyber bounty. Yeah. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn, uh, Adam Quinn 161 if you find me on Facebook, but just look for me and I'm the guy with my face. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, although I use that awfully uh, less frequently. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Uh, we will be back soon, I very much hope, and we hope you will be too. Bye. 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 For now.